The other kids make fun of him because of how young he looks. Nobody includes him. They call him the narc behind his back. They do? One day, you'll be cool. So you're the kid who's been sending me those articles from the school newspaper. What do you like, the star of your school? They hate me. This is Rolling Stone magazine. We got a couple copies of your stories. I think you should be writing for us. We can only pay, let me see, $700. All right, a grand. I'd like to interview you or somebody from your band. Oh, the enemy, a rock writer. How old are you? 17. Me too. Actually, I'm 16. Me too. Isn't it funny? The truth just sounds different. I'm 15. If you're going to be a true journalist, you cannot make friends with the rock star. They're gonna fly you places for free. You're gonna meet girls. Oh, God, it's gonna get ugly. I am telling secrets to the one guy you don't tell secrets to. I know what's going on. Your mom called! I have family members with severe anxiety problems. Hey, you wanna go to a party with some good people looking to have a good time? Don't take drugs! Your mom kind of freaked me out. It's Bowie! Rock stars have kidnapped my son. I am a golden god! friends with them. Well, it was fun. Because they make you feel cool. And hey, I met you. You are not cool. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours, the movie review program where we ask ourselves the ever-important question that we ask on every movie ever, Is It Yours? I'm joined today, I'm Paul Spataro, and I'm joined today by Mr. Scott 2.0 McGregor. Welcome aboard, Hello. Scott. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me, man. I've been, you know, love the other appearance I've I've had on your show. I'm always ready to talk movies. And this is a movie in particular that you were, uh, you came to me with this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Were... I question your your methodology there on uh, <laughs> on letting people suggest movies because I don't think there's going to be a lot of mystery about their eventual rating <laughs> when you let people do that, but. I was happy to oblige. Well, like several others that have come up of late, I think this one is more of the mystery is in where I'm going to find it. Mm-hmm. Because, as I was just saying to Scott before we started to record, this is two episodes in a row. The last episode uh, we recorded, or I recorded, uh, was Twister. And that was a, a movie similar to this one where I saw it when it first came out on home video. You know, didn't have very strong feelings about it, enjoyed it, and had not seen it again until I watched it for this show. And when I watched it for this show, I'm watching it for the enjoyment, but I'm also watching it with kind of a critic's eye. Mm-hmm. And so you have seen the uh, 
you will you do know the contrast between the the theatrical version and the version we did because that's a little different. Well, that's that's one of the first things. Well, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to get to that in a minute because I want to ask you about that because you're going to know a lot more about it than I do since mm-hmm. I haven't seen it. This movie first came out, and uh, for anybody who is unaware, we're, we're talking about Almost Famous, which came out in the year 2000. So that's 17 years ago, uh, and it came out. And eventually came out with a second version of it, which actually isn't called Almost Famous. It's called Untitled. Yeah. And when I saw it the first time, I saw the video release of Almost Famous. When I saw it this week, I saw Untitled. And I, I, I pretty much demanded that you, you get this, this version. Well, that was very, of, very bold. Library, it came with both versions. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And I didn't, But I didn't have time to watch both, so I just watched Untitled. And uh, why don't you give us a little breakdown as to the differences between the two? Because there's been such a gap in between my seeing them that I'm not really certain what the differences are. It's been a while since I think I just watched... This is one of those movies, kind of like Firefly series and Serenity and, you know, Godfather, stuff like that, Shaw's, of course, that I watch probably at least once a year. You know, just uh, just a traditional thing. And I, I, as soon as I learned about it, I went out and bought the DVD of the uh, the untitled, you know, bootleg edition, as they call it, um, which is essentially a big director's cut. Um, and so that's really the only version I've watched for many years, instead of like the last couple, maybe, and I've misplaced my DVD. I think I left it over at a friend's house and I need it back. <laughs> and so I watched the theatrical version again, I think probably about a year-ish ago. And so, yeah, I was finally keenly aware of kind of the, the differences again. And it's it's hard to really nail them down. It's just a lot more, you know. It's just a lot more of the kind of th- this movie has a, a very, like, found footage feel almost at times, especially the untitled version. You know, the, the theatrical version is a little more straightforward cut and, and flows. It flows better, actually. Um, there's like a good, almost an hour extra in this version um, Is it really compared that much to the actual. I think it's close because I don't. Well, the the original was probably. Let me see. I actually have it right here on IMDb, so they could probably tell me. Um, I, I think it was probably around you know maybe two hours uh, originally, and then this well, cut was according like, to like two forty one or something. The original is one hundred and twenty two minutes, so two hours and two minutes. Two hours exactly, so forty extra minutes in this one. Yeah, so okay, no small addition. Now um, I, I would be hard pressed to tell you what forty minutes are new and what were in the original. I mean, there's certain moments that you know are integral to the movie and had to be there, but uh, a lot of the excess footage, you know. Some of it could have been there, some of it may not have, I couldn't tell you. Yeah, I mean, some of the big ones were, I think the whole radio interview wasn't in the original, um, if I'm not mistaken. And um, there are a couple that are not immediately jumping to mind, but uh, maybe they'll come to me or I can find a web page. Um, so I kind of just get lost in it and don't. I didn't really critically think of that in that direction. Um, let me give the plot to this uh, sure. for anybody who's not familiar with it. In 1969, child prodigy William Miller struggles to fit in with the world. His widowed mother, Elaine, has led him to believe he is 12 years old, until William's older sister, Anita, tells their mother to tell the truth. His age is actually 11. 
His mother had him start first grade at five years old, and then he skipped fifth grade. Their mother strictly controls and protects him and his older sister, Anita, forbidding rock music and other unwelcome influences, driving Anita to leave home and become a flight attendant, much like our friend Daria. In 1973, 15-year-old William, influenced by the rock albums left by his sister, aspires to be a rock journalist, writing freelance articles for underground papers in San Diego. Rock journalist Lester Bangs, impressed with his writing, gives him a $35 assignment to review a Black Sabbath concert. He can't get backstage, but opening band Stillwater arrives, and after he flatters them with critical praise, they bring him along. Lead guitarist Russell Hammond takes a liking to him, partly because of William's new friendship with veteran groupie Penny Lane. Hey man, she, she's a band-aid. Though she prefers the term band-aid. <laughs> Feigning retirement from her glory days, she takes William under her wing. William is contacted by Ben Fong Torres, editor of Rolling Stone, who believes him to be older and hires him to write a story. He convinces Ben to let him write about Stillwater, and he is instructed to go on the road with them. Tensions between Russell and lead singer Jeff Beebe are evident. William's, William begins to interview the members of the band, but Russell repeatedly puts it off. Penny watches the interaction and sympathizes with William, who they joking, jokingly call the enemy because he's a journalist, but he quickly becomes part of their inner circle as he loses his objectivity. The band experiences problems with promoters and venues on the tour and hires Dennis, a professional manager. Penny is told she must leave them before New York, where Russell's ex-wife slash girlfriend Leslie will join them. Stillwater loses Penny's three protege groupies to another band in a poker game. She acts nonchalant but is devastated. Also, Dennis has chartered a small plane to allow them to play more gigs than their tour bus does, and there's no room on it for Penny, who is left behind. However, Penny goes to New York on her own and shows up at the restaurant where the band is celebrating the news that they will be featured on the cover of Rolling Stone. Leslie notices her apparent attempts to get Russell's attention, and Penny is asked to leave. William chases her back to her hotel, where he saves her from overdosing on quaaludes. The next day, the band flies to another gig, but the plane encounters severe weather. Believing they are about to die, members of the group confess their secrets to one another, bringing the conflicts between Jeff and Russell into the open. Jeff insults Penny, but William defends her and confesses that he loves her. The plane lands safely, leaving everyone to ponder the, ch the changed atmosphere. William leaves the group to finish the article at the Rolling Stone office in San Francisco, writing the whole truth about what he has observed. Fearful the story will damage the band's image, Russell tells the magazine's fact-checker that the boy's story is untrue, killing the article and crushing William emotionally. William's sister happens to encounter him sitting dejected in the airport and offers to take him anywhere in the world. He chooses to go home to San Diego, where their mother is overcome to have them back. One of the groupies chastises Russell for what he did to William. Russell calls Penny and asks to meet her, but she tricks him, giving him William's home address instead. He is forced to face William and apologizes. William finally gets his interview and Russell reverses himself and confirms William's article to Rolling Stone, which runs it as a cover feature. Meanwhile, Penny purchases a ticket to Morocco, fulfilling her long-standing fantasy. The end. Now this is really, uh, I don't know how I would title it, like as far as genre goes, because it's it's almost like a dramedy, right? But um, but it's almost like also a slice of life kind of thing. 
it's a coming of age story. I guess that's the best way I would describe it. Well, how much of the history of of this movie do you know? Uh, I, I know, I know that it's basically a uh, an autobiography by Cameron right. Crowe, and that it's his experiences with uh, what's it, the Eagles, the Allman uh, Brothers. Allman Brothers is it's primarily, primarily the Allman Brothers, but yeah. there's several bands apparently. Include, and I'm trying to remember what what I had read. It was. It was the Eagles, the Allman Brothers, Led yeah. Zeppelin, and Leonard Skinner. Russell was specifically like supposed to be Glenn Fry, kind of. Um, and yet the yeah. uh, the the part when he's on top of the roof and he jumps into the pool is very yeah. <laughs> that's apparently Dwayne Allman. Oh uh, well, I am a golden god is actually Robert Plant. But, but the diving know. into the pool. Of okay, the roof I did not know that one. Yep. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, his experiences in a blender. You know, you can, you can. That's uh, what I love about this movie is I, I still find like new little Easter eggs every time I watch it about bands that I know and, and realize that he's referencing. So that's pretty neat. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a little difficult for me to pin out exactly which bands are being. I don't want to say parodied or homaged or whatever it might be at a given moment or which stories are going from which but I'm sure there's a breakdown there was a uh, yes yeah, uh, commentary by Crow on the DVD that I would have liked to have had time to listen to because he might have given a little bit more insight into some of that there's I, a lot of good stuff on the IMDB page too actually um, frequency frequently asked questions and stuff I did feel that although they do show the darker side of some of the people that it was a little bit of a whitewashed version. Really? Hmm. That 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 I, I think the seedier aspect of this gets even a lot seedier than what we saw. Probably. Um, although, to be fair, you know, we're talking like, I think Penny Lane is maybe 16 in this. We're not positive, but uh, it gets pretty seedy if you start thinking about the details of things. Oh, the, yeah. Well, that's, that's part of what I'm talking about with whitewashing yeah. it. First of all, in, in the movie... Uh, Penny Lane is Kate Hudson. We'll talk a little bit about the casting in a few minutes. But uh, she's probably in her early 20s in this movie. Yeah, gotta be. It was pretty much, I think, one of her first things she did. Um, she's, so, of course, the daughter of uh, Goldie Hawn. And one of the Hudson brothers. I couldn't yeah. tell you which. Uh, yeah, but she's you know, she's in her, in her early 20s in reality filming this movie. And the way they portray her in the movie, that's probably about how old she's being shown to be. Right. Whereas in real life, you're probably right. She's probably 16, 17 years old. So that would be a little seedier. Also, even the things, whatever it is she's doing, they never really get into the dirty Right, side there's no they just, explicit they just see scenes. And, and yeah, that, they just see that was kind of nice, yeah. Which is fine. Yeah. I didn't need to see the dirtier side, but I'm no. just saying, I, I, I feel that it must have existed, and they didn't make it as dirty as it could have been. I think it, I think the movie would it would have been hurt by doing that. Yeah. Again, I don't want to make it sound like like that's a bad part of the movie. I just think that's something that takes it away from reality a little bit. And it's all pretty much point of view from Williams. So I mean, we don't even have an opportunity to see a lot of that. Luckily, you know, he's not peeping into windows and stuff. But yeah, I would imagine that if we were going to get more realistic you'd see a lot more drug use a lot more you know uh, a lot more violence actually I bet you there was 
you know, more going on with bodyguards and, you know, fans and whatever. I don't think it was all peace and love and everybody gets along. No, doubtful. <laughs> it's just life isn't that way, unfortunately. <clears throat> Especially when you start involving drugs and sex and booze. Peter Grant, of a, a manager for Led Zeppelin, would pretty much straight up kill a guy if he had to. So, yeah, if he yeah, thought he yeah, had yeah. to. So, now, how did you first see this? Uh, I don't know if I saw it in the theaters or not. I, I, I've actually followed Cameron Crowe for a while. He, um, of course, wrote the book and the screenplay that Fast Times at Ridgemont High was based on. Um, and he's the one that literally like went undercover you know, in a high school to, to write it. Mm-hmm. And I, I was a big fan of Singles. It's kind of a cheesy, schmaltzy movie, but um, you know, in very just the, the snapshot of the grunge era on Seattle and but I mean, really, I I, I read about this and, and read about the, you know, the origins of it, and I I I'm just a music guy, man. I love you know music based movies and um, anything with. That. I was a classic rock DJ too, so I mean, this is my music. Uh, you know, I know a lot of it just backwards and forwards, and I was just excited to get another view into that world. I've I've seen some interesting things as a DJ, but you know, never as a, a journalist. Uh, and I had some aspirations of being like a music journalist. I wrote for my uh, college newspaper first time I, I did it or first time I went to college. That is, and, um, you know, did, uh, some album reviews and stuff. So I, I was, I was trying to be William Miller slash Cameron Crow myself at one <laughs> point. So that's a lot of what attracted this, attracted me to this. And once I saw it, I was just kind of hooked. It's it's you know it's just one of my my top whatever movies I think, uh, which I don't try to really number because it's kind of impossible for me. Um, but yeah, mostly just the the subject matter, man. You know, rock and roll and getting to see the the behind the scenes stuff, and you know that's always interesting. Sometimes tragic, sometimes funny. Often tragic, unfortunately. Often, very often tragic. And, and there was plenty of tragedy in this, too, or near tragedy. But as you said, it, it didn't go as far as it could have. Um, Which, again, I, you know, I just want to be clear on that. I don't think that hurt it as a movie at all. I just think, no. you know, anybody who's looking at it and saying this is the true story of what happened, mm, I don't think so. It's, no, I think, it's, I think sure. it's based on true stories, but I think it's, you know, softened up a little bit for entertainment purposes. And I'm sure, actually, the line that sticks out to me is, you know, um, her admitting it's like, I've done twice as many things as as I've said I've done um, near the end of the movie. And, uh, you know, that that's almost kind of a good little representation of, of how Cameron Crowe probably wrote this. And like, well, I've seen a lot weirder stuff than I'm going to put in this movie because... I need people to come see this movie, <laughs> you know, and not be completely either repulsed or, or, you know, I don't know what, uh, you know, or he wasn't trying to make a, a deep, hard drama, and that's kind of good. It's almost like a rock and roll fairy tale, you know. It's Williams yes. and a rock and roll fairy tale. Yeah, I think that's a good description of it, and and it is based on some reality to there too, which makes it even more entertaining because you and, know there is a grain of truth to it, even if it's not. You know, a, a, an actual documentary. Unfortunately, a lot of people didn't go see this. Yeah, this, I, this I, was a box office failure. Uh, did really you look was. up the numbers on this? Yeah, I did uh, just before we um, I watched it again, and yeah, I was kind of surprised that like I don't think it even really 
I think it made a little money, but it no. didn't do much better than even. I don't think. No, it didn't. According no. to according to Wikipedia, which usually bases its, bases its numbers on Box Office Mojo, which I believe is somewhat reliable, mm-hmm. uh, the budget on the movie was sixty million dollars, which is fairly high for two thousand for a non special effect laden movie. I think. And the uh, box office take on it was forty seven point four million, so it, it lost about a quarter of its budget. Yeah. Which is which is fairly high, but this is almost the definition of a cult video movie, right? And it was kind of almost an, I mean, it, it gained some significant Oscar nominations too. So it was almost like an Oscar bait movie, but better in my opinion. Um. Yeah, well, the critics' reviews on it eventually came around, uh, and it was it was rated as like one of the best movies of the year by a lot of critics. It was nominated for several Academy Awards. Um, you know, it, it was, you know, critically it was well received, and eventually it was well received by the masses once it came, once it came out on video, but it just did not do well in the box office at all. Yeah, which is surprising because I mean I think that you know movies like this in the past have, have done fairly well. I mean music movies and and the like. Uh, Commitments was a big one that was very popular. Um, I don't know. Maybe people just—it was timing. I mean, I think it uh, was a lot of—I forget what other movies were in the Oscar running that year, but that didn't even give it a bump. You know, the the, the nominations, so or they didn't capitalize on the bump they should have gotten. I don't know which. I, I don't get it because I—I I think it's a great movie. <laughs> yeah, well, it's. Uh... But then again, it's it's in my wheelhouse of you know what I look for, and um, you know. Well, I don't think you're unique on this that because, like I said, once once it started to get a little bit of buzz on the home video market, I think it became very popular. Yeah. And even you know when I posted uh, the other day that I was watching it, just the responses that people put on Facebook, you know, show you that you know 17 years later, this is this is a very highly thought of movie. Yeah, it's it's got a lot of good emotional beats, and and I you know it's the kind of thing. Despite the amount of times I've seen it, and this is true of Star Wars, Godfather, whatever, you know, there's little moments that I'll just I don't know if I can call it choked up, but I'll get that like just tingle down my spine with a certain line or a certain scene, and it always is right there every time I watch it, no matter how many times, and and that's what keeps me coming back to certain movies and not coming back to others. <laughs> well, let's let's explore a little bit. What what are your favorite scenes in this? Oh, jeez. I, I should hire you to write my summaries for my other shows because you <laughs> did it. Because I just did, like, bullet point notes through the whole thing, and I still managed to come up with eight pages on a Word document, 24 points. So, <laughs> um, favorite scenes, I mean... The pre-stuff or the pre-Stillwater stuff with uh, young William and his mother, and I think actually a lot of that wasn't in in the theatrical too. I don't think that whole first scene with uh, the the chipmunk song, I think the chipmunk song was still in it, but the whole first scene was was a bit different, and I don't think they did the whole thing with them talking about um, To Kill a Mockingbird and her correcting the the guy writing Xmas on the sign, which. I, I think it went a lot farther to establishing the character of, of the mother, Elaine, and, and Frances McDormand just, just killed this role so hard. 
Now, um, I suspect that those early scenes were, you know, are probably the closest to based on reality in the right. movie. Right, yeah. That, uh, you know, that they're actual things that happened with him and his mother. Yeah, and, I, and the other scene that I, I'm pretty sure wasn't in the theatrical was the, the pubes scene, young William pubes in the shower where he's being mocked for not having hair yet <laughs> because he's only 11. Um <laughs> And so yeah, that, that that was almost painful to watch. It was, but I mean, I think it went a, a lot farther to to selling his anguish about it because the, the kid that played the young William really, I thought he just did a fantastic job. Everyone in this movie really did fantastic job. Yeah, well, I think we're going to spend a little bit of time going over the cast list a little. And then, and my favorite, some of my favorite stuff is, uh, you know, the concert scenes and, and Lester Bang stuff is is just a. I go back and watch just those scenes on YouTube every now and then because I just love Philip Seymour Hoffman and that so much. Yeah, and as as we were also saying beforehand, the similarities between this and having just watched Twister yeah. is that also had Phil, Philip Seymour Hoffman in it from a time before I knew who he, he, who he was and also playing kind of a very different character in that right. one. Right, yeah. Uh, yeah, he was... He was Great in this. I thought he came off really well, and I guess we'll start with him. Um, he, I thought, I thought he was written as and acted as the classic. I know more than you, critic, but not necessarily the bad guy. Just you know, the guy who feels that that everybody else is missing the point. Yeah, uh, music snob. I, I've probably been accused of it, or should have been in my day too. Um, yeah, I try to, you know, when we do these podcasts and we're reviewing movies and we're reviewing comics and on long play we're reviewing music and I try to always keep in mind that art is very subjective mm-hmm. and what you like, you know, and what I like may be different, but who's to say who's right and who's wrong? And that's the one thing, you know, somebody who is a musician can tell me why a piece of music is more complex than a different piece of music that I might not otherwise recognize. Right. And someone can tell me why, you know, something might be, you know, less original or something along those lines. But no one can tell you what you should and should not like. Right, absolutely. And that's the one thing about music critics. And I've thought that for a long time, you know, like, uh, you know, you read Entertainment Weekly and then you see, you know, the reviews on albums. And I think, well... You know, it's like I said, it's so subjective. And then if I'm a fan of this guy and you're not, and you know, or this particular style of music, it's it's very very difficult. And I and I I always take those reviews with a grain of salt. I, I'd be much quicker to accept a review of a TV show or a movie than I am a review of an album. Yeah, yeah, and it does sound like I mean, actually, if you go back and watch some old Lester Bangs footage, you can tell Philip Seymour did his uh, did his homework. Because he he kind of nails the character, um, mm-hmm. and but yeah, he was kind of pretentious, and uh, I think he was pretty much perceived that way through you know from a lot of musicians and stuff. He that was his whole motto, you know, be be unmerciful, I guess. Um, but then but then you you know you you get a little bit into the character, which I also like. It's not just the superficial. Hey, here's the stereotype. Yeah, he's he's introduced as the stereotype, talking all artsy and and being you know just just a bit above it all when when he's discussing rock music but then later on when he's talking to william you know he's like yeah we're nerds nobody listens to us yeah like like he understands a little bit more than he originally lets on 
is probably my favorite line in the whole movie is uh is his when he's talking to him near the end it's the only uh, true currency we have in a bankrupt world is what you share with someone else when you're uncool <laughs> it's one of my favorite <laughs> quotes ever <clears throat> said it. now going you know a little bit earlier in it we have Frances McDormand and she absolutely nails the character of the mother yeah, she nails everything she's in. I've always loved her. Yeah, yeah I, I can honestly say I don't think I've ever seen her give a bad performance. But you know, and it's such a quirky. Of... I mean, it's it, it's such a quirky role, and it's almost surprising. It almost you know feels like a an our era type of mom. You know, being on the health kicks and, and not doing Christmas in in December and stuff like that. Um, well, she almost runs the risk as written. If she portrayed it wrong, and this, like I said, I think the uh, the Lester Bangs character was written really well and it was acted really well, but I think it was mutual. Mm-hmm. In this, I think the acting kind of saved it a little bit because I think with the wrong actress in there, she'd almost come off as Carrie's mom. Yeah, it was a little over the top. Yeah, I agree with you there. Um, but the way she portrays it, you could always feel that she always does have that love of her children and their best interests at heart, even if she is maybe a little bit old-fashioned and a little bit uh, overprotective. Well, Zooey, maybe, yeah. Maybe a lot overprotective. Zooey Deschanel, I think it is, who yeah. plays her uh, daughter, Anita, I thought really helped her sell that, too, the, the tension between them and, you know, her basically calling her out on, like, we're a crazy family. You know, why are we doing this? You know, why can't I even listen to to Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel and, and yeah, the I find, scene of... I find that amusing that, that they pull out the album. I, I think it was the album Bookends. Yeah. Uh, if I remember right. And it's, you know, like they both have short hair and it's black and white. And it, it almost looks like, you know, you pull out a Montavani album. <laughs> right. But no, they're it, on the pot. Look at the eyes, Paul. Yeah. Yeah. But like, you know, like if, if you wanted to be over the top in that scene, you'd have them pull out... Uh, you know, uh, Goat's Head Soup or uh, Sergeant Peppers or something, <laughs> yeah. you know, something something a little bit more trippy. Yeah. that That's as, as laid back an album cover as you're going to find. And mm-hmm. she's, you know, look at it. <laughs> but then I, I did hear something where Paul Simon, because she said something about them being on the pot and Paul Simon said something to the effect after the movie about, oh, she might have, he might, she might have known what she was talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> So, uh, moving on a little bit again, you, you just mentioned Zoe Deschanel, and uh, I guess this is the first thing I ever remember seeing her in. Yeah, I think it was pretty early in her career, 17 years ago. Man, I can't believe it's <laughs> been that long already. I mean, she I thought she did a terrific job. Um, <clears throat> the only thing, she she did lead to one, one of my very few criticisms of the movie, is mm-hmm. just the way it's written. For her to run into William at the airport at the end is just yeah. so ridiculously coincidental. Yeah, airport as to be unbelievable. <laughs> yes, I mean, and not only does he ju- she just run into him at the airport, which is in and of itself so ridiculously unlikely, but she did it at exactly the moment when he needed her. To. Yeah. Oh yeah. It that wasn't was just when the... he was on tour with them, and they, you know, all was good. Yeah. Yeah, no, just to illustrate the uh, the point that, you know, he's been all over the, the country at this point, and all he wants to do is go home to his bed. But we could have figured that out if he had just taken a trip home. Well, but I think the whole point, from a plot-driven point of view, is to get the, the daughter home as well. Back to mom, yeah. And, and to show that despite the friction between them early in the movie, that there is love there. 
Even though that had to be like the most awkward cinematic hug I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> it's up there. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, that that's the only the only like what is like I said, one of the few criticisms I have of the movie and it's it's really just based on we did this because the plot demands it as opposed to it being, you know, something that would naturally occur. I found a few more nitpicks, as I promised you I would try to do. Is you know, okay, and I'm going to want to hear those and as they come in, as they fit, let okay. me know. Um, we could talk about Billy Crudup. Now, I don't know of him in anything else offhand. I know he's done other things, but I don't recall ever seeing him in anything. He's uh, Well, he played uh, Dr. Manhattan in, in uh, Watchmen. Oh, that's right. Okay, yes. Fans, which, you know, he looks a lot different not being blue and having his penis out. Um, <laughs> uh, and what else have I seen him in? Um, I mean, I've seen him in a lot of things, but now nothing's coming to mind for some reason. <laughs> um, he was going to play the Flash's father, apparently, in the upcoming Flash movie. I know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he's going to be an alien covenant as well. Oh, okay. I did not know that, but... Um, he yeah, he's kind of one of those big fish. Mission yeah, that, that was 3. a big one for him. Yeah, yeah. Um, but nothing, nothing that really stands out to me. This, this to me is his his key role so far. Yeah, well, he's yeah. good. He's always been like a good utility actor, and you know, he doesn't always get the lead. But I mean, he's a pretty face, and he's a decent actor. And he know. definitely embodies that role in this movie, though. Yeah, yeah. You know, he he really just fits the part. He seems likable. And yet, somewhat aloof. Um, well, they did yeah. like monkeys camp for this movie, and and the, there was a significant amount of prep time to actually learn how to look, you know, like you're playing a live show, and and pretty much the whole cast did, you know, learn rudimentary instruments, um, and so that you know, if anyone knows, you know, rock concerts, it's Cameron Crowe, so he. You did right by uh, the preparation in this, I think, because I, I bought it. You know, I bought it was actually them singing on stage when, when the concert scenes happened, even though I knew it wasn't. But Well, that's, so the, from, from there we can go to Jason Lee, who is supposed to be doing the singing. Yeah. Now, the only thing, like, I don't this this is definitely a nitpick, but, you know, we're told it's supposed to be Allman Brothers, Zeppelin, Eagles, Leonard Skinnerd, and... Believe me, I'm all over that music. I love mm-hmm. that music. This didn't when they were playing. It didn't sound like that to me. No, it, didn't it was sound more. Like, it wasn't like a, t- a rift on one of those songs. Right. Which it I sounded think it, like more more like a metal band. Yeah, and some of them. Yeah. Um, There's an interesting group of people that wrote the music for this. It was uh, Cameron's wife at the time, Nancy Wilson of Heart. Mm-hmm. Todd Rundgren, uh, not Todd Rundgren, but. Uh, Peter Frampton, I know. That's it, yeah. Frampton, who is, actually has a role in this, too, um, wrote a lot of them. Um, and I forget who was singing for, for Jeff Beebe, for, for uh, Jason Lee, but uh, I've I read in an interview that um, Jason Lee kind of based his his character on, like, um, Paul Rogers of, of Bad Company. And so there is a very Bad Company-ish vibe in the music, I think. Yeah, see, oh. I, didn't, I didn't hear the bad company. I, I could see where maybe the look might have got, gotten there, yeah. but I didn't. I didn't. I didn't hear it. Like I said, it definitely sounded more metal to me and less less classic rock. Yeah, less. Yeah, it did feel a little out of place for the era that it was supposed to be in. I agree with you there, Paul. 
I still dug the tunes, though. <laughs> it's, it's it's a pretty minor criticism, I, yeah. I openly admit. But, you know, I, I got to call it the way I see it. So who else do we have? Well, there's, there's a few other things like that that aren't, you know, I mean, I think actually a few of the Zeppelin songs that they included were not written before 1973. Well, they, so they I think said, there's uh, a, a few little... They, what I heard was that they had to actually screen the movie for Zeppelin. Yeah. In order to get them to agree to let them use a song. And I think and they, were, they, were told they, could, they were told they could use like three songs, but they only ended up yeah. using one. Oh, no, there were a good three or there were a good four Zeppelin songs in that okay, movie. Okay, well, then, then whatever it was, they, were, they, were, they used less than they were told. Well, the, the big thing and the funny story is, I don't know if you got to watch any of the extras on the, the DVDs. I didn't. But they had shot a scene. They were trying to get Stairway to Heaven. And there's you, there's just a very little snippet of the scene in the actual movie. It's it's where Elaine tells William, you know, no more than four days on the road when he's trying to talk her into letting him go on the road with Stillwater. But the whole there's a whole scene before that that took place where it, William got, like, some of his teachers and like his, probably not his sister, but like his sister's boyfriend that was still at home. And he plays the, uh, Stairway to Heaven for his mother to kind of let her understand that, you know, rock and roll isn't all evil and the devil and stuff like that. And that's what actually, you know, makes her agree to let him go on the road with this rock band. And so you don't get to see any of that. But they never scored the rights to Stairway. So on the extras on the DVD, there's literally a scene of a bunch of people sitting around bopping their heads to a silent Stairway to Heaven that Cameron included on the extras. That may that may be, and again, I'm, I'm a little fuzzy on the details of it, but that may be the story I heard, that they finally got permission to use Stairway to Heaven, but then it wasn't in the movie ultimately. It might have been that. Maybe. Um I don't know. I think I think you actually wrote the scene hoping you would get it and said, yeah, well, I, like I said, if the story I heard is accurate, he was hoping to get it, but by the time that he did get it, it he didn't feel it fit for some reason. Yeah, well, it would have been a long scene because I think literally it was like all eight minutes of he was originally going to play the whole song in the scene. So, yeah, probably didn't look good on the the final edit if you're trying to keep your movie under two hours. Yeah, well, obviously, there was a lot on the cutting floor. Yeah. Uh, so, moving down the cast a little bit, let's talk about William, Patrick Fugit. I don't know if he's done anything much since this. Yeah, sadly, he didn't do anything as big as Almost Famous. I'm looking at his IMDb right now, Patrick Fugit. Um, he was yeah, in just another make, Just Cameron to make you feel film. old, he's 34 now. Yeah, wow. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, he's. I think he's, if it's still going, he's on the TV show Outcast right now, apparently. Um, and as far as other movies, he did one more, Cameron Crowe, which was We Bought a Zoo. It's actually I've a good heard flick. of that. It's a good flick. I um, never saw it, but I've heard of it. And uh, he was on Gone Girl. He was one of the cops. Um, he was on ER for a while. He was originally supposed to be in Donnie Darko. Oh, wow. He was replaced by... Jake Gyllenhaal. He played his character on Mad TV, apparently, in 2001. He played William Miller. I, I never caught that episode. Um, and he was untouched by an angel um, just before <laughs> Almost Famous, probably as a very young lad, because it was 97. 
Uh, he, I mean, he was fairly young when this movie was yeah. made, so you hope you hope he's had a pain-free transition into adulthood because a lot of young actors and actresses do not. It can go badly. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Hopefully, so. the uh, the tragic parts of the movie he was in kind of steered him away from some of that. You know, he, he didn't. He got to watch that stomach pumping scene and, and decided that was something he not did not want to experience. <laughs> exactly. So, speaking of the stomach pumping scene, this was the breakout film for Kate Hudson. Uh, I don't know what she did before this, and obviously she was born into show business, but when she made this movie, she all of a sudden just was huge. She was just, it's one of those roles you really couldn't think of anybody else in, you know, at this point. And a lot of actually big name actresses went out for it. Um, but, you know, I guess maybe having Goldie Hawn as your mom might give you a little more juice. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, she's, uh, I would, you know, just, and she got an Oscar nomination for this, and I think deservedly so, because she's just, you can see every emotion so well on her face, and she goes from being the happy, carefree groupie to just heartbroken in, in a second, you know. And it's uh, just kind of the classic story of, you know, young girl dating a married guy, you know, when it comes right down to it, and, and, you know, she should know that he's never going to leave her for, for her, but uh, still holds on to that hope. <laughs> and there's there's a lot of moments in this where, I, I I thought her performance was fairly nuanced, where it could have been very over the top. Mm-hmm. Um, there's scenes in there where you know she's knows more than she's letting on. There's scenes in there where, you know, her heart is breaking. Uh, there's things in there where, where she's trying to be the mentor to William. So there's, there's just a lot of stuff going on there. And I, and I like I said, I, I thought it was a fairly nuanced performance instead of what could have been just, uh, you know, full of emoting and just something you, you know, w- which would almost be painful to watch. Yeah. And then, you know, top it off with the fact that she's just very cute. Yeah. <laughs> it does, it does doesn't hurt, hurt at all. No. <laughs> so. Uh, now, story-wise, as we started to talk, you know, we've talked a little bit about it. Uh, you know, it's a coming-of-age story. And it's one that is somewhat unique. Like, usually when you get a story like this, it's like people are going to be sitting there saying, oh, yeah, I remember when that happened to me, or I mm-hmm. remember that kind of thing. But this is one that's more like, hey, this guy got to live the fantasy that all high school age rock and roll fans wanted to live. Yeah. Yeah. And this is what it was like, and this is what it would be like for a real person. And, and, you know, William is your point of view character. So you're living it kind of through his eyes. So there's a certain appeal to that, to anybody like you and I, who, who, like I said, lived, you know, trying to go to those concerts and enjoyed the music and just, you know, enjoyed the whole scene. Uh, but again, I do think there's there's a seedy side to it that we really didn't see, or or a just a more seedy side. I mean, I think we saw some aspects of it, but I don't think we saw all of it. And then there's even a little bit of the cutthroat nature of it, where uh, what's his name, uh, the 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 agent comes in and oh, Jimmy Fallon, yeah, yeah, Jimmy Fallon <laughs> comes on to just become the new agent, and. Uh, you know, the guy who they hired to be the agent because he was their friend, you know, you're out now. Yeah. 
but ultimately, yeah. I guess he was still along for the ride, though, after that. It's not like they cut him out totally. Yeah, no, you know, he said your manager needs a manager. Um, and he was just, uh, yeah, that was a great scene. And just put it all on the table. And it, it went back to what Lester Bangs was saying, and they, they neatly tied it back to his conversation in that this is, you know, the over-commercialization of, of this art that we love, you know. Um, you know, Lester Bangs' famous pretension against uh, arty, you know, rock and roll or or the success of it, you know, the, the big marketing of the, uh, what is it, the industry of cool, he called it. Well, that, that's <laughs> the, when, when you, you know, you, you hear some of that stuff. I, I know there was some friction on the Rolling Stones between uh, Keith Rickard, Richards and Mick Jagger because Richards felt that Jagger sold out. Mm-hmm. And I don't see how you could be a group with that level of fame without having a certain element of sellout to it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that was the, the whole point they were making, you know, it was just, it's like, yeah, you guys love doing this for the fans, but you know, this is also a business and you got to tend to the business. And, um, a lot of bands probably got caught up in that whole, Oh, someone's giving us a record contract. We're going to sign on the dotted line, not really look stuff over. And, you know, I've read stories about bands getting into huge debt, you know, uh, cause a lot of the old record contracts would, would pay you this huge, ridiculous, you know, advance on the money that, that you got to make up with, with ticket sales and, and album sales. And if you don't, you, you owe the company money basically, or you're going to end up selling them the rights to all your songs or, you know, all kinds of messy legal things. Um, so I thought they did that dynamic really well. You know, this this band that still kind of has its this ideology of uh, starving artists. You know, but um, they they also realize they're getting big and and all the pitfalls you know that entails, including almost getting them killed in a, a plane crash. <laughs> so. Yeah, the, the plane crash scene. Honestly, I thought was a little. Not totally believable. Yeah. It's... Uh, but the thing that I thought was very believable, and, and, I, and I don't want to just abandon that point. I want to get back to it. But uh, the thing I thought was very believable was the friction between Russell and BB. Yeah, totally. Um... You know, Russell was the songwriter and the lead guitarist, and he was the front man. And it, although BB was the lead singer, who you would naturally think would be the front man, you know he he wasn't, and there was a level of jealousy there. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting was the way that, at least the way they showed it, Russell didn't really court that. He wasn't necessarily looking to be, "Hey, I need all the attention." Right, but it was just happening, and I suspect it does in in bands like that. I mean, you know. Um... I'm trying to think of similar situations, and I could think of, like, say, Van Halen with David Lee Roth and Eddie Van Halen. That's the first thing that jumped to my mind, yeah. It's like, yeah, you can maybe change your lead singer that, but you always got to have Eddie Van Halen in there if you're going to call him Van Halen. Um, or, or one, you know, not not the same type of music necessarily, but uh, I think we had a little bit of that with Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah, oh yeah, they've, like, famously hated them each other for years. And, and what what the one song in particular that I, I've heard it about was Bridge Over Troubled Water, mm-hmm. where Paul Simon wrote it, then actually wanted Art Garfunkel to sing it, but then when it became, like, a really big hit, was kind of felt that he was left out even though he wrote the song mm. so then he started performing it live 
because but you know unfortunately for him and I think Paul Simon's an incredible songwriter but he couldn't match Art Garfunkel's vocals on that particular song right yeah and I thought they showed that well too you know band almost like a a, a content you know a, a stormy relationship and them you know essentially breaking up and then the whole beautiful house party I am a golden god scene um just one of my favorites <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, getting back to the the healing power of Elton John, you know, bringing oh, <laughs> bring the dancer, yeah. bringing the band back together, which and is that just is a great scene, classic, classic scene. Yeah, I, I cannot hear that song now without the movie running through my head. Of course, so, that's the only only downside to some of the music in this movie is that I've watched it so many times that there are certain songs that are like so tied to this movie now that you know I almost avoid them on the radio because. I don't want to watch right now. <laughs> now, uh, just to go back again, because uh, I mentioned the somewhat unrealistic nature of the plane turbulence. You know, it just seemed like they, they went a little over the top with it. And it could have been slightly less dramatic. Right. And still had the same final effect. But what I thought saved it, actually, was how they ended it. Because I, I don't even know which character is the drummer. I don't yes, know who's the drummer. Yeah. Uh, just, just a second before the turbulence stops, stops, he yells out that he's gay. Yeah, perfect. Because, you know, we're all about <laughs> and, to die, so let's get the dirty laundry out there at last. And then, and, yep. and then, the, then the, the turbulence stops, and you could just see the look on his face like, oh, shit, what did I do? <laughs> yeah. See, so yeah, I can see that, 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 that happening, though. I, I, you said maybe not quite as extreme, but if if you think you're going down, man, why not? Why not say everything you ever wanted to say? <laughs> I would. I'd be telling people off left and right, possibly between bouts of praying. <laughs> well, ultimately, I mean, that's what happens. That's where the tension between Russell and uh, BB comes to a head. Yeah, and they, they, you know, scream at each other and. You know, and, and there is some, you know, again, while I said, you know, Russell didn't really seek the fame the way that he got it. He wasn't, he wasn't, you know, uh, lobbying to be the front man necessarily. But BB has some good points where, you know, you, you set yourself out as being above us all and yet you're doing the same things we're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, and he talks about what his relationship with Penny Lane and all of that. And they did kind of, again, it's kind of an over-the-top scene, and would it really happen that way? We don't know. But the the whole t-shirt scene, which, you know, causes him to go to the Golden God party, and, um, of course, the t-shirt comes out, and he's he's out there in front, and the whole band is behind him fuzzy, you know, out of focus. And uh, I love some of the lines in that one, too. Like, you love this t-shirt. This This gives you a chance to say everything you want to say about me, you know. Mm-hmm. So they have it out, and <laughs> and then Russell leaves and goes looking for real Topeka people, and hilarity ensues. Oh, by the I'm way, Aaron, sure. the guy who uh, had the party, it pretty right. much looks exactly like Honeywell did when he was younger and had hair. <laughs> Just want to put that out there. <laughs> well, there were there were rumors about what he looked like at that point. <laughs> Mostly, uh, I think they have to do with Cthulhu. Well, I've known the man from only about 1988 on, so you know anything that happened before that, I have no clue. You have to ask Gardner for that one. <laughs> so this is written and directed by Cameron Crowe, and as you said, he also wrote 
uh, fast times at Ridgemont High. And oh, I'm just looking at his his career. We have Jerry Maguire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Vanilla Sky. Apparently, he had a relationship with Tom Cruise at that point. <laughs> yeah, luckily a short one. Although I liked that movie, but it was weird. But it doesn't look like there's too much. You know, you mentioned we bought the, we bought a zoo. Not not a lot of uh, big name movies after that, which is a little surprising. You would think there'd be. Jerry, no, I guess Jerry Maguire is before this. No, after I believe. Uh, I'm just trying to see the year on that. So this was no Jerry Maguire is 1996. Oh, okay, so that so that predates this. So that probably gave him the the juice to make this, being such a personal project, because it. Yeah, well, and and in hindsight, maybe it shouldn't have been made for the amount of money it lost, but. Uh, yeah, that's what you do. You you get a blockbuster and then you do your your personal thing. Uh, I think Cameron Crowe has been. I, that's why I kind of respect him as an artist. That he's he's never has really just gone and and you know used his name to to get a blockbuster or something handed to him. And I'm sure he could have. I mean, he's done some great concert videos too. He did one on Neil Young and uh, and Pearl Jam not too far in the past. Uh, okay, so, so he he picks projects 20. I think that that mean a lot to him and you know that that usually makes for a pretty good movie if you've if you're definitely invested in what you're you're creating. Yeah, I, I agree, and I think uh, no no doubt about it. As you said, this is a very personal movie. Uh, you know, they they say autobiographical. I think it's autobiographical in nature, but I also think there's kind of some composites. As far as you know, as, as we said, this is there's several bands that are kind of being uh, consolidated into uh, one here, and I'm sure there's some experiences that he had, some experiences he heard about. You know, not that he wasn't necessarily there for every single thing that went on in this right. particular movie. I think that's really the best way to do something like this, though. I mean, how could he had a pretty long career actually as a rock writer, and um, you know, just to to try to focus on on one band that he covered or something like that. For one, the music rights would probably be near impossible to secure, you know, more than a few songs for for any given artist. Um, well, this had an impressive <laughs> soundtrack to it. And mm-hmm. I, I believe I read that it was one of the, you know, larger uh, checks for, uh, you know, music rights probably ever written for a movie. Uh, yeah, I'm, sure, I'm sure a lot of that $64 million budget was... Mm-hmm. In music rights, again, not not a lot in the way of special effects, and not a lot of big name actors at the time. No, no, and uh, some have gone on to do bigger things, and some haven't. But I'll tell you, there's a lot of like Noah Taylor is a standout for me, and I've I've followed his career on the guy who played the the main the first manager, and he always kind of kills anything he's in, and just one of those good utility um, actors. He was in Game of Thrones and Vanilla Sky too. He's done most of, you know, he pretty much pops up in just about every Cameron Crowe thing ever made. Uh, Cameron, I'm trying to remember who he is in Game of Thrones. Uh, he played one of the when they were at the. He was like a spy at the uh, the wall. Um, I forget who sent him exactly now. Maybe the Lannisters, but he eventually tried to like infiltrate and. He ended up getting killed as they were like, uh, 
attacking casters keep there, I think it was, in well, the wild. Automatically, ones. just being in Game of Thrones gives you a certain amount of cred. With yeah, that. you know. Um, yeah, but I loved him in this. He was funny as hell, especially the, I mean, the DJ, the, the DJ interview was one of the hilarious scenes in my opinion. And then everyone's swearing on the mic because the DJ's passed out stoned. And, and so I don't know why yeah, they but, left but that out of that. And he's totally oblivious to what just went on. Yeah. And that guy is uh, one half of uh, Tenacious D. He's uh, Jack Black's partner. And Tenacious D, I forget the actor's name, but that was pretty neat. Having been a DJ, that was the favorite scene of mine, but I never had an interview like that. <laughs> I would imagine. Not too many people have, probably. No. What other notes you have on this, Scott? Um, Sad, just, man, favorite scenes are, you know, it's got to be the the Tiny Dancer scene, as schmaltzy as it is. Um, I, I, I'm a mock for scenes like that, though. I yeah, know. yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, how, if I was singing along again, you know, when I watched it today, I, I will admit. So, uh, you can't beat it. Uh, just the Rolling Stone stuff, as I said, for me, that just looking into that world at all um, was fascinating to me. And and I love the... the I, you didn't get as much of it, obviously, in the theatrical version. And, and one of my nitpicks is, going back and watching it, is that a lot of it was very... Could have been cut a little better, you know, and, he, and Cameron Crowe probably didn't care for this particular project. He was just throwing the kitchen sink in there. Um, you know, there, and there are a couple of montage shots that might not make sense to people. There, There's one thing I will suggest to people um, is that uh, you should look up the song Small Time Blues um, by Pete Droge, and you just get a really brief um, flash of it. Like, I think it's in Cleveland. Um, or maybe it's the Hyatt house, the first hotel they go to, and he walks by a room and you see a couple that's like, it's rep- supposed to be Emmylou Harris and, and a guy she used to sing with. Um, but it's a song by Pete Droge and, um, that's pretty neat. And I think he runs into Lenny Bruce in the halls there. The guy that tells him to do something to him uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, I love like Sapphire's shaming of Russell at the end and, and like Sapphire when the, the one groupie Sapphire answers the phone and Elaine's on the other end and she's just like, I think, you know, <laughs> is this Marianne with the high, the, with the pot? And Elaine's of course, you know, nope, this isn't Marianne. This is William's mother. And, and then she just goes like, Let, let's look at your son and appreciate it. He's doing a great job. He's still a virgin, not for long. Um, mm-hmm. That was a great scene, obviously. That was, and and, sh- and what was <laughs> nice about that was it wasn't your typical scene where the mother would just be like outraged. She actually was listening to her and was being convinced by her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in that conversation, which is, which to me shows some depth of character for the character of Elaine. Yeah, it's... that she isn't just a one note. Again, Carrie's mother. Right. Uh, you know, she she was she was somebody who deeply cared about her family and was looking out for their best interests and, you know, was willing to compromise that where she saw her reason to. Well, and she had to come with the, uh, the, you know, the classic parent realization that maybe your child isn't, doesn't want to do what you think he should do in life. You know, she was all about him being a lawyer. He's still going to be the youngest lawyer in you know America. Um, and despite many times of him basically trying to tell her, you know, she's like, well, as long as I know this rock journalism thing is just a hobby. And, you know, he's just kind of looking at her like, well, I got bad news for you, mom. 
This is kind of my destiny. <laughs> and I just, yeah, her whole arc, and you could see it. And it's almost like a running joke, but it's part of the arc. And that, you know, the whole everyone that gets on the phone with her gets freaked out. Like the, the, the scene with Russell talking to her on the phone just makes me howl with laughter every time I see it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like, <laughs> your mom kind of freaked me out. Like, you know, she means well, but... <laughs> Like the guy at the hotel desk who hands him the first note there and is like, your mother called. She's a handful. Yeah. <laughs> Make her stop calling me. <laughs> Tell her to stop calling me. <laughs> she scares me. Mm-hmm. And so to see that come, and especially with her meeting Russell at the end, it's just this, you know, this realization that, wow, yeah, my son's got some weird friends, but maybe they're not such bad people, and maybe this is what he's supposed to be doing. So, yeah, hers is one of the more interesting arcs in, in the show, or in the movie, in my opinion. And uh, it's just great to even, you know, see her awkwardly. And at the last scene is, like, the, the family dinner table. So it's like the whole family is kind of united. So it's a nice kind of happy ending to everything. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always happen with families. but No, but, it, you know, in this one I think it was called for, and I think yeah. it... it played well just as another uh trivia thing the desk clerk that was saying your mother scares me uh-huh. that's uh cameron from modern family okay i knew he looked familiar i've seen him in other stuff i've, I've never watched uh, modern family but well um obviously you had the another, you had another person who had a bigger career afterwards yeah going back to the the Opie must die scene where the the three um, band aids decide they are so boring. If you know it was any other town, you'd still be a virgin. They tell him because uh, it was so boring that they they're sitting around. And they decide to deflower young William. And the thing that's so beautiful about that, and I'm going to get schmaltzy now, is that you know it just that so much illustrated how much he was falling in love with Penny, because here he has these three women dancing around him about to show him pleasures he didn't dream he would probably get for decades or whatever mm-hmm. or ever <laughs> and uh the whole time his eyes are on penny you know he doesn't even give one look to them until she leaves the room and that was just so it, uh, my love has never been that strong for anybody i would not have been looking at penny at that point <laughs> but i thought it was a great scene and then just before that with him, you know, her peeing in front of him uh, was hilarious, too. There are just so many, man. You know, said this is, this is one of my faves, I think. Uh, I've, I've probably seen this almost as many times as things like Star Wars and Jaws now, and that's no small feat. <laughs> well, I've seen it twice now. Yeah. <laughs> but I have to say I did thoroughly enjoy it, and I enjoyed it more. And this, this, I think this says a lot. When I first saw it, I thought it was an enjoyable movie, and that was it. Mm-hmm. It was over, and I moved on, and that's why I hadn't seen it again in 17 years. When I watched it, was it yesterday? I guess it was yesterday. I did so with a critic perspective. Yeah. I was watching it, trying to get some enjoyment out of it, but I was also trying to look at it and say, you know, where does it work? Where does it not work? You know, how am I going to rank this movie? And I actually enjoyed it more watching it with a critical eye than I did just casually watching it for enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that speaks of the quality of the movie, the quality of the writing, the quality of the directing, and the quality of the acting, which I think are all above, you know, above average. Yeah. And some well above average. So, 
at this point, Drum roll. I don't think there's going to be much mystery here, but I'm going to say, Scott, is this yours? This is yours. I'm going to give you first. I'm going to give you the rankings, but we already know your answer. Okay. Yep. Jaws <laughs> is virtually a perfect movie. You know, an all-time classic. Very little wrong with it. And again, just goes in that top level of movies of all time. Jaws two, very enjoyable, worthy of rewatching. Uh, you know, very little in the way of flaws, but just not at quite at that classic level. Jaws three, watchable, but not a heck of a lot more than that. And Jaws four, a bad movie. Mm-hmm. Roaring and, shark, bad movie. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, for me, it's Jaws. Is it a perfect movie? No. And you know, I found a little more. Noticed a little more of the clunky editing and some of the lines in the rewatch this time. Um, but for me, this one's about how it makes me feel when I watch it. And it's just, as I said earlier, it just hits those emotional beats every single time. You know, in all the all the same places. And that's staying power for a movie for me. That's Jaws for me. You know, that I can watch a movie that many times and still, like, be surprised that I have these feelings while I'm watching it. Uh, you know, the Indianapolis speech every single time, you know, <laughs> singing Show Me the Way to Go Home every single time, the tiny dancer scene every single time. Um, so, yeah, totally Jaws. And uh, that, that probably wasn't a surprise. Uh, no, as, no. as William says when he finally, or as uh, Russell says when he finally gets his interview with uh, with William at the end there, you know, what do you like about music, you know, and what do I like about this movie to begin with everything. So There you go. <laughs> Another quote that's worthwhile there. I was a little troubled by how to rank this because I did see very little in the way of flaws. I mean, there are some, and you've, you've pointed to some. I've mentioned a couple of little plot contrivances. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I saw very, very little wrong with this movie. And, and I... Enjoyed. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I just don't know for me that it quite hits the level of classic. Mm-hmm. I think it's really solid. It's very good. So what I'm going to say for me personally, I'm putting it at the upper level of Jaws Two. Very good. Not quite. It doesn't quite hit that all-time classic for me, but it's just a really, really solid movie. It's it's a subjective said for me, having actually been immersed in the music industry in a way. For you know, a few years here and there, um, there's certain things that are going to resonate with someone like me that that it's not with someone who hasn't been a DJ, hasn't been you know traveled with a band even briefly or even a small local band. Um, you know, I, I was a rock journalist in a way for a while. Uh, I did some independent stuff, and so it, it, you know, that was that was my dreams of grandeur. There is watching William Miller Miller get to get to play with the big boys so um yeah there's there's a lot of vicarious thrill there for for someone like me that that may not translate to everyone else but while like i said for me i'm ranking it as a high jaws too i certainly wouldn't quibble with your ranking it as a jaws yeah so you to won't feel lester bangs on me you're not gonna tell me that to be fair there's some swell. people who might say just regular jaws too yeah and i don't think i'd quibble with them either <laughs> Uh, somebody, if anybody said Jaws four, I think I would Lester Bangs them. <laughs> yeah. Just, to, but just as a, as a side note, I looked up Lester Bangs. He died when he was thirty three years old. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, deed. It wasn't too long after he met Mr. Miller. Uh, unfortunately. That's a shame. That's tragic. Yeah. 
Yeah. Boys take but, speed and drink cough medicine. That's really not a good combination. So Yeah, that, that's not going to help. <laughs> so thanks for coming on today. Thanks oh, for thank talking you, about Paul. this. And thank you for getting me to watch it. Yeah, no problem. It's one, one of the things I enjoy about doing the show is people are getting me to watch some movies that I might not otherwise watch. I don't know that I would have revisited Almost Famous, and I'm glad that I did. Well, this is here where I'm Lester Bangs. I'm, I'm the annoying friend with this movie, like Firefly. Like, I'm one of those. I'm the guy that's like, you have to watch this movie. You know, I literally will take my friends and shake them by the shoulders. And <laughs> uh, It's one of the reasons why I do this show yeah. is, for, is exactly that, to have friends like you get me to watch things that I might not otherwise watch. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and often now I'm finding that they're movies that uh, the people who, are, who come on with me say, yeah, this is one that I forced so-and-so to watch. And, you know, usually it's movies people feel passionately about because I'm asking them, what do you want to review? I'll go just saying, how about we review this movie? Yeah. I'll go one further. Is like, This is one of my movies that, like, if you're, if you're going to be a female and, and be in my life at all, you know, in a relationship type of way, you, you have to get it. This is like Firefly. I, I, any woman I've ever dated probably I've forced to watch this movie with me. <laughs> and you know, if they don't like it, maybe maybe they get the door. Uh, <laughs> I have high standards. I wish. Yeah. <laughs> it's not. It's it's like the uh, in diner the guy who uh, <laughs> the test. Yeah, he, he won't get married unless you could pass the Baltimore Colts test. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, Firefly and this one. Those those are my two big ones. If you're if you get these, you probably get me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think I'm 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 on a level with you now. Yeah. Now that I've watched both of them and discussed both of them with you in in podcasts. Actually, no, we didn't do uh, Firefly together. We didn't do. Uh, well, I was on a couple of your guys' shows. Remember? Yeah, we didn't yeah. do uh, what you call it? Serenity. No, you? I didn't make the cut for Serenity. I had to give that yeah. one to Blaine, but you were out. Yeah. <laughs> I think we just had promised it to him before we. Before yeah, hey, no biggie. You guys had me on for like what three of them? I was overjoyed. <laughs> well, thanks again for coming on this one. Why don't you just throw out to everybody where where they can find you before we sign off? Absolutely, but first of all, it's all happening. I got to throw that out there. Um, but you can find me on Weekly Heroics uh, with Mr. Chris Tyler, and we talk about superhero TV shows, and we have a blast doing that. Um, Fear the Walking Dead cast when it's in season, either The Walking Dead or Fear the Walking Dead. Uh, occasionally, very rarely lately, do a couple things called No Councils for Old Men, which my partner is going to probably kill me because I haven't got our episode out in a while. Uh, that's a video game related podcast and Mindless Drivel, which is kind of an anything related podcast that anything that comes, although it's been pretty much primarily star wars stuff lately but we're going to move on to other subjects soon including and not to step on this uh this show's toes at all but i am planning actually kind of a rock movie discussion you know not just almost famous but it'll be in there and you know we're just going to talk about some of our our favorite music related movies and such i I won't i won't feel that's stepping on my toes so don't worry about that cool but right. you, you are again. a movie guy, man. So you know, any any time you think we're encroaching on your territory, just you know, call it Demands of Court Goons and send them over. I think there was already movie stuff going on, and I just cut out my own little piece of it. So yeah, hey, whatever goes on around me is fine. It's a big tent. We we can yeah, all fit exactly. into it. I think yeah, that's really exactly my point. I think there's <laughs> there's plenty of room for any anybody else who wants to do any other kind of movie things. Yeah. 
Now, if they do it with the Jaws rankings, then I'm going to then we got some problems, co- some yeah. copyright royalties. But you got to send that, the ghost of Robert Shaw over there to kick some butt. There you go. Yeah. All right, I think on that we'll call it a good night. And thank you everybody for listening. If you have anything you want to say, I don't get too many emails, but uh, Jaws Podcast at Gmail dot com. Uh, even more so than that, I'd love some iTunes reviews. So, you know, go ahead. If you like the show, let me know. Oh, man. You made friends with them. See, friendship is the booze they feed you. Because they want you to get drunk and feeling like you belong. Well, it was fun. Because they make you feel cool. And hey, I met you. You are not cool. I know. Even when I thought I was, I knew I wasn't. Right, because we are uncool. Now, while women will always be a problem for guys like us, most of the great art in the world is about that very problem. Good-looking people, they got no spine. Their art never lasts. Now they get the girls, but we're smarter. Yeah, I can really see that now. Yeah, because great art is about you know, guilt and longing and love disguises sex and sex disguises love hey let's face it you got a big head start i'm glad you were home i'm always home i'm uncool me too you're doing great the only true currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with someone else when you're uncool is that my advice to you and i know you think these guys are your friends If you want to be a true friend to him, be honest and unmerciful.